Welcome to another spectacular special guest Saturday. Today, Meg and Dr. G sit down with a coach who can do it all. Allison Foley, former head women's soccer coach at Boston College and CEO of Foley Athletic Advising, Allison reveals her secrets to her successful career and how she helped shatter ceilings to set a new bar for women in coaching. Time to speak some sport knowledge. Hey, Megan, Dr. G here for SPKN Special Guest Saturday, where sport knowledge is spoken. And with us today is one of my absolute favorite coaches, Allison Foley. Allison spent 22 years as the head women's soccer coach at Boston College and built an incredible legacy, not only of great soccer players, but of great women as well. As the winningest coach in the program's history, Coach Foley led her team to 15 NCAA Division I tournament appearances, including eight Sweet 16s, eight Elite Eights, and hit the Final Four in 2010 before she retired in, 19, in 2018, and hit the Final Four in 2010 before retiring in 2018. And if that's not enough, Allison is an adjunct professor at Regis College in their fitness and health science department, a scout for U.S. soccer, as well as CEO of Foley Athletic Advising. Nope, I'm not done yet. Allison has co-authored two of the leading books on girls soccer, How to Coach Girls, which was released in 2018, and The Elusive Full Ride Scholarship, an Insider's Guide released late last year. Okay, well, Allison, obviously you've redefined overachiever. Welcome to the Sport Professional Knowledge Network. So we're going to we're going to start obviously at the beginning. My guess is you love soccer. Yeah, that's 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 for sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I assumed you played as a kid and give us a little glimpse into Allison as a as a young athlete. Yeah, so as a young athlete, Soccer was my favorite sport and played a little basketball as well. But back then, U.S. soccer, we had Olympic development programs and you'd make your state team and your regional team and then go to national camp. So, so that was sort of in that what I did every summer, you know, since probably about 12 years old and, in, in, you know, and in, in, in through college. So that, yeah, so love it. Still do. Still play a little bit once in a while. You always, um, that's all you ever wanted to do was be in soccer? Well, you know, not professional. Like, I didn't think as a career. I, you know, I always loved to play, but I never thought, you know, I didn't even think it was a job, like a real <laughs> job, like college coach, like it's not a job, right? So it wasn't to the, the head coach that had recruited me to Keene State. He had left right before I, I went to Keene, and, uh, but we remained very friendly. And he went down to be the head coach at James Madison University. And my senior year at Keene, you know, I wasn't exactly sure what I was going to do. My undergraduate degrees in psychology. I was looking into some counseling programs, you know, masters, but I wasn't 100% sure. And then he called me and, and I think it was April. And he's like, well, what are you, what are you doing now? I, I have no idea. And he said, you know, I'm looking for a graduate assistant. I think you'd be a great fit down here. So I went down there, you know, in an interview and looked around and met with people in the kinesiology department. I actually changed... I started in the counseling program there and then I changed to kinesiology and so met, met people in both because I wasn't positive what I was going to do. And then two years after that, after I got my master's, the job became full time and he, he saved me again because I didn't know what I was doing again. He <laughs> <laughs> graduated and said, now like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who's saving me now? <laughs> Can you elaborate on that one? One of the I'm very interested, right, with with your years of coaching and, and and women's soccer too, and being a head coach as long as you are is at the Division One level is a tremendous accomplishment in itself to have that longevity. But even back then too, this is you know 20 plus years ago. So what's going on at the time that that coach identifies you as a promising coach or somebody that he wants to have on staff? Yeah, you know, I think at the beginning, you know, as a grad assistant, sort of probably some of the qualities, you just need to be really like dedicated and hardworking, you know, and I think that's probably, you know, what I think, he, you know, I'd be loyal to him, I'd work hard for him, we, you know, even though, you know, he left for a different job, we, we stayed in contact through, you know, my, my career, my college career, and I, you know, I think in any, any 
job and certainly in coaching, you, you want somebody to be committed and loyal. And, you know, I think just that was just the way our relationship had, had unfolded. Yeah. It's an interesting pipeline too, because this is a, one of the things that I study too, and right in sport coaching is gender. And so this is a male coach recruiting a, you know, woman to be a graduate assistant with them too. So even back then there weren't a lot of women coaches at that level. Yeah, you're, you're right, Brian, there, there, there weren't. And, you know, it's getting better. I still think, you know, I'd love to, you know, I'm a big advocate for women. You know, when I, when I see leadership or some qualities in them, I'm like, you, you got to do this. You, you can do this as a career. And, and I, you know, I, I really try to encourage women to do that. I mean, I think the longevity of the sport for women some, to, to coach in, in athletics is difficult to raise a family. I think the average division one female co- coach is like 7.8 years is the average where I think it's, you know, for guys, you know, 17 plus years, you know, in the profession, not necessarily at one, at one institution, but in the profession. And you, you know, it does take some work. It does take some work balancing, you know, children and division one recruiting and coaching. It's, 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 it's year round. It's around the clock. It's, you know, busy. So, but, but I think now with the expansion of staffs and they're adding an extra assistant on staff, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll get to see more women, you know, involved in coaching longer. Do you have any um, suggestions or hints for, for women coaches that things that you were able to do with, with your, do you have one or two kids? I can't remember. I have one. Um, okay. Sydney. Yeah. You know, I, what I will say is we were, I was in a really fortunate situation. We were able to add, I knew I was going to be gone constantly. So we added in an in-law apartment to the house. So I had a nanny, you know, in my house all the time, which was really, she traveled with us. So, so that I was really fortunate. We had family around as well. So, you know, we could, we could have certain people come in on a Monday to relieve the nanny. And, and so we just, we just had a really good network and I, you know, and, and so I was a little bit lucky in, in my child care scenario, but you can do it. People can totally do it. And one of, and I remember, I remember, so there was nobody that had at, at that time, nobody had a child at BC. There was an, men did, there was dads, but there weren't any yeah. moms. Yeah. And I remember going into my athletic director when I was pregnant and, and I think this is sort of the, the problem. And I was a part of it. I, I was part of it too. I was like, Oh my God, I got to tell my AD. First of all, I, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to wait until I get in the final 16 before I get pregnant. <laughs> so I'm like established a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I got that done. And then, and then I remember going in to tell my AD I was pregnant and, and just to make sure he knew I could do this and that like, I, you know, I wasn't going to take a month maternity leave. I'd, I'd take a week. I'd get back on my feet. You know, it was in January. Sydney was born in January by design. So, oh. it was, you know, so. It's pretty um, impressive all, all in itself. Just, you know, like <laughs> the females have to think about, right? And yeah, then, yeah. And then I went into my athletic director, Gene DiFilippo, and, and I have to say, he was great. He's like, stop, stop. Do you know how happy I am for you? Oh, isn't that you great? know how great this is going to be for all the female athletes to see you be a mom. And he's like, I want you to bring her around. I mean, it, it couldn't have gone any better. You know, I was really lucky. So, but I think that's the problem. There's the stigma that women put on themselves that if, if I start, if I start raising a family, people are going to think I'm distracted or I'm not going to be as good at my job anymore. And, and it's just not true. It's just not true. I think I became a better coach after I was a mom. And I think that happens to a lot of, a, a lot of people and you, you find a way to balance, you just find a way to make it all come together. So, you know, I just, just think it's, it's a great job. It's a great job. It's great to have your children around college students. It's really good for the college students to see you as a mom. So I, I, I think it's a really good, a really good connection all around. I, I, in the literature and, and one of the things you kind of touch upon though, right? Like, you know, women, it's not like they put that burden on themselves out of nowhere. It's from years, you know, centuries of being discriminated and not having full access and rights and careers. So, and one of the things that we see too, right, is that different scenarios, different contexts. So your AD and your experience, that we're sounding very supportive too. Very supportive. So I, I guess, so in order to enlarge the discussion to co- other coaches and administrators, you know, what was going on in addition to his encouragement, you know, what do you think it would take to have a supportive, family-friendly work environment to help more women and 
men balance that role uh, in being a sport parent uh, coach at the high level? Yeah, you know, I, I think I think really encouraging, and this, you know, I think this can go in a lot of different uh, occupations. It's okay to travel with your family, you know, as long as that your child has, you know, you, you bring a, a caregiver with you, whether it be a relative or a nanny or who, whoever it might be. We've had we we were allowed to bring our manager on some trips because she was able to watch Sydney. And so that was sort of our, you know, part of what we do. And I, I, I think that you just have to ask those questions to your athletic director. I, I really do think, not, not everybody, some, some might not agree, but I think, I think the majority of people do want to su- support you and do want to have a network around you. The failed hockey coach had a, ch- a daughter, she came in later, but like when Sydney was four years old, she Ainsley Lamb, so then it was another mom, you know, on, on staff. It, it was really helpful to them just bounce and balance some things off of her and have somebody else in the same situation. But again, I would just really say that communicate with, with, with your, with your AD, you may have to realign some of your, your job, job descriptions and responsibilities with your staff. And maybe if you felt like you needed to do the majority of the recruiting, you know, out, out on the field or, you know, in the ice rink or wherever, if you were the one on site, maybe you do some more of the recruiting behind the scenes and you, you know, allow your assistants, you know, an opportunity to be that recruiting coordinator because now they're also gaining that experience of, of being, you know, a primary contact and, and, you know, out in the field. So shifting responsibilities on your staff, I, you know, it, it's, it's good. It also adds personal growth in for your, for your members of your staff. You sounded kind of ex- surprised at the response. What, I mean, I think BC is kind of special in that way, but or, or was back then. But what do you know of any fellow, you know, colleagues that had trouble with their administration when with anything, pregnancy or anything else as being a woman coach? I, I don't. I, I did have one particular friend whose athletic director just said, you know, we just don't allow family, whether it's, you know, your significant other, your mom, your children. We just don't allow family to travel, you know, this is this is a business trip, and that's the way we want it to be represented, you know. So was it a budget thing or or a philosophy? No, thing? no, it was a philosophy thing. No, no, it was a philosophy thing. And I, and and you know that, but majority of my friends, my my female friends that were in college coaching, were very well supported. That's great. Yeah. That's so that's one. what that's what you know, young women that are you know considering this need to know that the majority are yeah. very supportive. How about, let's touch again, some, we always kind of sometimes approach this as a negative sort of thing or like the consequences. What about the positive, right? The AD Jerry's talking about, oh, this is going to be so great for the, the women athletes to see. What were some of the other ways that, you know, having a child or being pregnant and having a family around the athletes and for yourself then as a parent, you know, enhanced your coaching and enhanced the environment? Yeah, you know, I think sometimes coaches, you know, they're the coach, they're the boss, right? And they're in charge, they're leading, you know, maybe she has a sensitive side, maybe she doesn't, but you know, they see you kiss your baby and nurture your baby and like take care of your baby. I I think that that adds an extra level of approachability. And, you know, my coach is real, my coach, you know, and I I think I had a pretty good relationship prior to being pregnant with that particular team. I think it even got tighter and and for me too, to watch them with my child, you know, was amazing. So I think that, I think that's a bonus for, for kids to see, to, to see that, you know, the, I, I think it was a bonus for them to see the mom and me. And I think that goes for a lot of coaches when, when players can see that leader, sort of that, you know, dominant figure, a little bit softer and nurturing, they can be seen as a little bit more approachable and, mm-hmm. and, and enhance the relationship. Yeah, well, we see that. I mean, in, in the literature too, that right, the leadership was always a masculine, you know, very dominating, autocratic, you know, uh, sort of thing. You know, even the great man personality theories of you know seventy five years ago. But obviously, that's changed as gender roles and more inclusive environments has changed too. Even for male coaches, right? When and and I was coaching and brought my daughter in a baby jumper. You know, that was a totally different thing for people to see. And absolutely. And, you know, so I'm curious, yeah, for you, how did then being a sport parent maybe change your coaching or how you thought about, you know, the girls and the young people that you're working with, right? Oh, you have okay. a child and it, it's, it's transformational. You have a child of your own yeah. now and you're like, wow, you know, what revelations, what new insights, you know, do you think happened in your life at that point? You know, you know, I think, I, I, I think it, 
I realized like, okay, this is going to be a balancing act, but I'm, you know, I think it's going to, it's going to teach the kids that you can do a lot of things too. And I, I did really believe after, after the conversation with my AD that, that this was, this was being a really good role model in whatever profession they were going to choose. It didn't necessarily have to be coaching, but that, you know, they're going to graduate from this great school, Boston college and, and get a really good degree, raising a family and being a mom doesn't have to stop, you know, stop, stop you in your profession. You can do this simultaneously and you can do it really well simultaneously. So I think that was sort of a revelation or an opportunity for me to be able to role model that for the kids. Did it change the way you coached at all? Did you see the girls a little differently? You, you know, you, you, you recognize you're dealing with somebody's child and, and, and you, you do ask yourself like, okay, I want to choose the right tone. I want to really think about this conversation because somebody's going to talk to Sid like this one day. And I, you know, and, and absolutely that, that ran, that ran through my head after having Sydney, you know, on the way mm -hmm. I would communicate in conversations, content, tone, the whole bit. I wonder in your case, then as an athlete yourself, you know, that what the effect uh, your parents had on you and how their tone was, it's always a weird transition when you go from not having, not being a parent to being a parent. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, it's hard to describe to people and then you have a child and you're like, wow, this is really transformational. But do you want to talk about how your parents uh, influenced your career development and, and your values then as an athlete and as a person? Yeah. You know, my, my parents were super supportive and, you know, I had mentioned, you know, that like the ODP and all of that, like everything sort of, I have three other siblings and it was sort of like, Oh, everything's going to run around Allison's soccer schedule. Here we go. And national camp, used to be out in Franklin Marshall, which is in Pennsylvania and right outside of Hershey, Pennsylvania. And every summer I'd be there. So my, my, my family would always go to Hershey park on summer vacation because I had to be at Franklin Marshall down the road. And I was so sick of the chocolate factory every single time. <laughs> so it was sort of a full family, you know, support, you know, and I can remember like if I had like a big game or something, they're like, well, Allison can cut down on her chores, but why don't you guys pick it up a little bit? So <laughs> my, my siblings were like, I, I have a lot to be thankful. Like, and I kind of was just like, well, yeah, that's the way it's going to go. They were, they were really supportive. My whole family was, my dad coached me a lot in both soccer and basketball youth sport. So that, you know, that was always really important to, to me to, to do well for him. And you know, whether it was up at Keene State or at BC, I can probably count on one hand all my career, how many games he lost. I mean, he's just, he was, and my mom too, but, but my mom, my mother too, but it, it, it was like my dad's life revolved around BC soccer, you know, like he put his vacation time around weekends. We were wet, you know, so, so I was really fortunate, you know, with my, my, my full family support of, of, you know, my soccer career young and, and post, I'm also yeah. old, kind of old. Yeah. That's hardcore. Your dad was hardcore. That's a hardcore. If you're scheduling your vacations around sports schedules, you're pretty, you're pretty hardcore with it. I know. I yeah. can't remember the last time I had Thanksgiving, not at an IHOP or, a, you know, exactly. <laughs> Harry Queen. <laughs> exactly. I wanted to ask, what are some of the things that you have done? Like you recognize when you're coaching your daughter that kind of remind you of both positive and negative of things that your father kind of you experienced with your father coaching you. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, it, it's funny. I think Sydney was seven or eight when I first, first coached her. And I, I remember it's, I, I think this is the first time I'm admitting this is right now. I remember like when my dad would compliment one of my friends or one of them, I used to kind of get jealous and I used to like make sure whatever it was, I did a little bit better. And a little competitive. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was like, I want my dad to think I'm the best on the team. Of <laughs> and I saw that in Sydney as well. So in, in that, in that, that emotion of how that felt to me just kind of came right through me again. And I was like, okay, I got to remember, like, I've got to, you know, balance this off. And because sometimes coaches don't want to compliment their own kid because it sounds like they're favoring them or, you know, you have to always be con you know cautious of that. And, but I, but I remember how that felt. And I remember, so I, you know, I, I just said, okay, Sid's like everybody else. If she does something well, I'm going to compliment her no more or no less than her teammates. So that was one of the, yeah, I guess that was one of the things that, that, you know, helped me remember kind of how I felt. 
There's a lot of coach parents that coach their own child then are like extra hard on them sometimes. Yeah. And, and you hear the, you know, it's easier to discipline your own child than somebody else's child sort yeah. of narrative of today's age, especially. Yeah. I, so, I, I have seen that. I, I will say my dad wasn't like that to me. And I, and I hope I wasn't like that to Sydney. We're going to have her on next too. Yeah. So. Right. I was just going to say that. <laughs> We're going to have a totally different story, but you know, and I, I also, one thing that I wouldn't do that my dad, my dad would talk about the game on the car ride that, you know, that uh, he'd go yeah. on. We'd have to be no, no. <laughs> once, we, once we hit, once we were in the car, I, I said, Sid, where, where do you want to go for ice cream? What do we, what are we doing next year? I really try to put that mom hat on as quickly as I could, because mm -hmm. I did want to distinguish that, you know, there, there, there are two different roles that I'm going to play. You know, I'm going to be your coach. Of course, I'm your mom still, but the, you know, that's what goes on for that hour and a half training session. How, game. how about, how about for you as a child athlete, around your dad, like you were aware of it and then didn't kind of reinforce or balance some of those things. But what did you do to cope at the time too, to kind of block out that maybe, you know, too much pressure that can result in some, you know, negative outcomes? Yeah. You know, it's interesting to you. I, I guess I didn't really know any better. I was like, okay, I kind of don't want to talk about this anymore, but I thought this must go on with everybody's parents that coach them. They just <laughs> might yeah, bring it yep. home. So I, I guess normal. Yeah. I just thought it was normal. Yeah. Yep. And you went into, you know, now, now that I make the connection, you're right. You went into psychology and perhaps then counseling psychology as well. And that's often a very common thing too, is people are trying to make sense of their lives or, you know, respond to something that they've experienced thus far in their lives. Yeah, that's right. Exactly I just, right. that's my psychoanalysis 101 for his, for his free yeah. today. Yeah. Thanks G. That's, that's so <laughs> helpful. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to talk a little bit about coaching. Let's let's talk about BC and and you know how this incredible program that you built and just I remember such a warm feeling coming from the whole staff when the kids come to to even the camps and and that sort of thing. What was kind of your coaching philosophy that helped build that incredible program? You know, thank you because thank you for for recognizing that, Meg. Because I think that's that's the groundwork of what we wanted to do. We we wanted to be a family. You know, I was really fortunate with great assistant coaches. You know, we we talked about Mike Levine. I, I see I see him now. Even when I've moved far away from him, he's in my house more than anybody else. That's my. That is not surprising. <laughs> and I love him to death. You know, we 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 care about each other as a staff. We care about each. You know, we work hard, we disagree, we watch video. I don't see it sometimes the same way, you know, my assistants, but we agree to disagree because we're working for the common cause and we care about each other and we want to, we want all the, you know, everybody in the program successful. We try to emulate that same feeling and that, that same connection with our players that we're there for them. We want to support them. We're going to push them and, and there are going to be times when we have to make decisions that might not be what they want. However, we're going to stick by their side. We're going to help them through it if they want that help. And, and, and we're going to work, you know, we're going to all work together, you know, when things aren't great to make sure we get them better. And that's sort of always been, you know, the common thread of how our, our program has operated. You know, I think from a, a, a specific soccer point, I think the best thing that our program, other than having the kids know that we were really there for them, we developed our players. I, I think it, when we were in the ACC, we probably didn't get a player like UNC or maybe a couple once in a while or Duke or Virginia, you know, but we, we loved working individually, small groups with our players because that's when they really get better. And that's also a time that you connect when you're working, you know, out of season in a smaller group or with, with them individually, because, you know, you, they have your undivided attention. So I think that was another, you know, really big foundation building block was, you know, making smaller group connections and, in, in training individually with our kids. What do you think was one of the key things in, in creating that kind of culture? You know, I, I think with our players, everyone has expectations and standards. You know, everyone has certain goals and, and you know, leadership skills, all, all this. We always talked about being kind, you know, be, be kind. Everyone on this team's equal. It was really important if somebody was, you know, 30 on our roster, that we made them feel like they were number one to us. And that they were important they mattered and we really asked all the players to buy into that you know be kind to each other in the program be kind to your fans 
everyone would always say thank you to the bus driver when we got, you know, everyone had to acknowledge the bus driver when we got on that bus, when we got off that bus, the wait staff when we were in restaurants, you know, it's just to be, you know, you know, and Michael, I, I bring him up again. One thing he'd say, if, if somebody, he was the worst thing in the world, bad manners, worst thing in the world, bad manners. <laughs> and it's what our staff, you know, it's, it's really good to be kind and well-mannered. And we, we hope as a staff that we would portray and, and practice what we preach. I think I would pick members on our staff before they're a really good soccer person to be a really good person. And I think we select our roster in a similar way. And with all the numbers that everyone's going with, you know, you're, you're connected all the time to all these little gadgets that, you know, give you statistics one way or another. And I think a lot of coaches may rely on those too much or get a little lazy. Do I say that? Yeah, no, no, no. I I think I, you know, I think, I think to, you know, a, a certain point, you know, we, we all get affected by stats and numbers and, you know, rankings, national rankings, whether it be their team individually by their position. But the best thing about recruiting is when you find that diamond in the rough, right? That nobody really knows about, or that wasn't, you know, in soccer America or, or top drawer soccer or ranked really high. And you usually find them, you know, at maybe one of your ID clinics or something like that, like a Charlie, right? I wouldn't have found Charlie if Charlie didn't come out, you know? So, and then all of a sudden, you know, you just, (laughs) yeah. So, so those are the, those are the really, really great things when that happens. So you two are going to have to tell everybody listening now, who is Charlie (laughs) and how this kind of, this hit a little bit more of the history here. Okay. I'm going to let Meg get into that. Quickly, Meg. I think the best day of Charlie's life, I think we we went out, I, I can't remember a day, a, a summer we weren't in Boston, which are not always pleasant, by the way. Nice. <laughs> so hot. <laughs> but, and none of the, none of the places have air conditioning. It's lovely. No, but she, she went out there for her first one, I think she, when she was about 12. Yeah, and she, she, was she was young, yeah. Yeah, and she loved it. And the only reason we started there was because I went to BC. I'm like, okay, well, let's just go see that one and see what happens, you know, see if you like it. And she loved it. I was like, okay, well, you're going to have to go back in the winter then because it's not (laughs) always like this. We went back, I think, in January or something like that. She loved it. So, but I think the happiest day, this explains everything. The happiest day of her life is she's headed in, you know, all nervous, little tiny Charlie. (laughs) She's all nervous to go to this ID camp. And Allison is cutting and running before all the parents get to her, before the, the beginning of the of the the camp. And you come out of the bubble and Charlie's there. We're just walking by and you're like, Charlie! And you give her a hug and she's like, I think her her feet actually rose off the ground. I mean, it was it was the sweetest thing on earth. And she from that moment on, she was just set and I just remember how amazing it was she went to other camps and she looked at other schools and everything but there was a real connection to the the girls and the the staff I mean it you she could pick up on it right away she couldn't vocalize it very well but it it stands out there's no question Hmm. so thank you for that thank you thank you for sharing that yeah, it seems to be exemplifying. I'm trying to. I'm trying to. Like, I wasn't there. Obviously, nobody else decided it was there. But what a what a powerfully emotional, uplifting, positive thing. You know, kind of displaying that kindness, but making a big difference in the life of a 12 year old to make them feel really good at that time. Let's talk about recruiting a little bit. I'm I'm curious about how you you do you were able to pick such incredible kids and. They weren't always, you know, the top of the top of the top, which you could have done coming from, especially when you guys were in the ACC, you could have really gone by the numbers. And what, what, did, what made you decide to go in other directions? Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the biggest things, Meg, is we, we, we knew that it, we were going to be around these kids a long time. It's not like a club soccer team. If you're going to go coach a club top soccer team or even to the national teams at some point, get the best players because once you go home, you know, they're, they go back to their parents after the game, right? We, we knew we had to get the right people in our family. We knew we had to have players that we could trust on and off the field. 
we knew we had to have certainly hard, like we just had the biggest, biggest compliment I think Anson ever gave us was, you know, hey, going up to Boston and playing the, uh, those grinders, like they're the hardest, they're mutters and grinders and they're the hardest team to play against. And so we looked for those qualities in a person. We looked for somebody, you know, we, we'd look to see on, on the field when a team was down, how did, how did players deal with that adversity? Like who was the player that was trying to get their team up or when, you know, in the last couple minutes, if they were tied, who was just pushing and pushing. So we really try to look for that grit on the field. And then, and then we were, you know, phone calls and, and meetings. And, you know, now a lot of it's being done on Zooms. We really took our time getting to know players and families. That was important to us. And it was important for me to involve all of my staff in the recruiting process because I value their opinion and I wanted to make sure, you know, we were always on the same page. So, so that's, you know, we, that's sort of what, what we wanted in the in sort of a quality and the qualities of, of our players. Uh, so coach, when I, when I hear you articulate that it's very refined, right. And there's a great, and, and I'm thinking of some of the literature that right, you're talking about your philosophy and your values and how you want to run your program, you know, how did that get solidified? You know, what are some of the learning experiences that you had along the way to go, this is how we're going to do things and not kind of fall into, or maybe you did too, maybe you fell into some traps, you know, quick fixes or try to cut corners or recruit people that didn't fit. You know, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I had my mistakes. I, I, I taken a couple of transfers that didn't work out or I got somebody, you know, too early and I didn't take my time getting to know them as well or understanding their background and, 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 you know, and so, so, so I definitely had a few setbacks, you know, through early, especially because I was 26 when I started at BC. So that was young. So I, I early on definitely had that, like, oh my goodness, this kid at, at that time, UConn was really good. Right. And I'm like, we're in a recruiting battle with UConn. Like I just got to jump on this and offer more money. So I, I did, I did have, you know, those mistakes where I, you know, and it wouldn't have necessarily been the, uh, uh, you know, character flaw in, in the recruit, maybe just didn't, you know, play and just be the person that was what we were trying to develop. And I think in terms of the environment, I think we're all products of what we were brought up in. I don't think that I was ever the most talented soccer player. I, I worked really hard. You know, I, I knew what I could control. I could control being the fittest kid on the team, the hardest working kid, somebody that didn't give up. So, you know, I, I, I think we, if that's kind of who you are and that's kind of how you played, you recruit, you recruit, I think similar to, to, to your own, your own playing style. And in terms of the environment, one of, one of the whole reasons I went to Keene State was because of, of my high school soccer team went there every single summer. And I, I loved, I loved the team atmosphere. I loved how close they were. They had a foreign influence. I thought that was really cool. I love Dave Lombardo, the head coach at the time. And I look back at my own childhood with my father coaching me and how important that was. And my eight best friends from high school or childhood, eight best friends from childhood, we all played high school soccer together. And we're still, I mean, I'm having a Christmas party, you know, we're 50, they're coming over. My eight best friends, you know, that were on my soccer team in high school on, fr on Friday. So it's under 10. It will be socially protect, you know, with all the right things. But, but that's, so that's what teams mean to me it, you know it's like sticking together being a family you know in in you know when I go back to Dave Lombardo still one of my closest friends Mike Levine one of my closest friends so you know and, and you hope that you can give people that experience like the, I just wanted to give young women I just was ho hoping I could create that so they had that experience the rest of their lives Let's move on to the books. I mean, these are great books. I absolutely love them. You in 2018, you tell me how you guys started. It it was with you and another soccer mom, for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah. So so Mia Wenjin is, is the co-author of the book. And really the the whole reason, you know, I didn't think I could write a book or should write a, I didn't think I should write a book, but so she is the mom of of Sydney's. This is back when Sid was well, they, we first met them when Sid was like four or five years old. We moved into the neighborhood. So they were best friends. They, she had two girls, one year older and two years older than my daughter. And they just hit it off and became best friends. They played all different sports. And whenever there was a sports situation or, you know, one of Mia's kids got cut or there was a, 
you know, carpool issue. One girl was being left out of the carpool, whatever the case might've been. She'd come down, she's like, I've got this drama going on. Like this is going on in Allie's team or this is going on in Zoe's volleyball team. And so I was like, oh, maybe, you know, think about this and try to, you know, and I just would just give a suggestion. And then four or five years after that, she was like, you gotta write a book. Like you can help so many people parents and coaches, like you got to take this knowledge and like put it in a book. And I'm like, okay, me, I'm not writing a book. <laughs> then it was a great experience. She convinced me finally to do it. You know, and I, I, I remember the stat of how many, of, of, of how, how many children, boys and girls were stopping playing organized sport in middle school. And I just was like, you know, if, if there is something that I can do to kind of keep them involved, you know, let's do it because that's a, that's, that's not, you know, again, thinking about everything great outside of just exercise sport, you know, provided me and my childhood. So we met for two, three months, every Thursday morning, we had coffee, she'd ask questions, we record and that's sort of how the book developed. So, but yeah, it was a fun, it was really fun doing that. It was a lot of fun. How do do you, how do you balance when you're writing something like that too, not trying to homogenize an entire group, you know, our entire, you know, gender, right, of people and saying like, this is the, the way to coach, you know, girls or women in soccer or sports in general. Right, right. You know, we, we, we tried throughout the book, you know, and I have coached boys, but not to the extent, because my daughter was like, I don't think you should write that book. You haven't coached boys enough. That's what she told me. And, and a little bit true. I have, I have coached boys, but I've been around boy athletes and boys teams so much in college and high school and everything. So, you know, we try not to say every girl needs to be motivated this way. It was more in my experiences, girls, you know, like to be complimented occasionally and they're going to, and they're going to work harder for you. Now there are girls out there that you can scream at and that's going to motivate them. So I, I tried to, you know, use some verbiage in my experiences you know, the majority of girls are social and they want the first, you know, five minutes of practice when they come out of, you know, out of the high school or out of, you know, out of the classes or in, out of, in college as well, they want to socialize. So I just let them go jog around the field, you know, and, and talk and get that five minutes out. Now, some girls don't want to socialize. They're like, let's go. And they'd stay next to me. And like, I just give them reps with the ball. And like, because that that's what they wanted to do. So we did try, Brian, not to say this is the end all be all and all women mm-hmm. tick this way, we're all girls tick this way. So we were careful in our, you know, in our language or Mia was, cause Mia, Mia was much better with the language to, to not put everybody in one, one, you know, one basket. Yeah. And it too, you know, and right as a college professor, I don't discount individual experiences, personal observations. I do find it interesting and this is super nerdy now of me, but how you can, use careful wording and language to hedge, you know, or modify your claims and your stance towards things. So it's just, it's, it's just something that we really overlook a lot, but it's refreshing to hear you say that or, and then provide that advice to other people of how do I talk about this without saying this is for everybody in all cases and all scenarios. And, you know, everybody's the same because you know, they're, they're not too. Right. Well, it's even like simple words. You know, if you say, okay, all the big girls go in the back of the team photo. You know, you say, hey, all the big guys go in the back. They're like, hey, I'm in the yeah, back. Yeah. <laughs> so, the I, five foot three guys just like. Exactly. Oh, no, no, I, don't, I don't know, why, why do I have Speaking to be from experience there, G? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm thinking of my, yeah, I'm thinking of my, my middle child. He's a little guy and, and but you right, like same thing, like little boys or like when you say that to a girl, like, like Charlie's out there, right? You lift them up or you're careful about your language and they feel better and they're going to want to be around you and participate in those things better. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's amazing the difference a word. If you choose your words well, Mm -hmm. what a difference it will make. Yeah. And I think that's experience, you know, and I I said, again, I'm I'm sure I didn't do the best of of it all the time. You know, at at 26, I probably reacted a little bit more emotionally and, and didn't, you know, take that, take enough time to, you know, settle down and think about things before, I, you know, I gave the messaging at halftime. And I, I think that is something over time, it's, it's, it's a skill. You, you learn to do a better job of communicating for sure. So when you were a younger coach center and earlier on, were you more aggressive, quick, you know, harsh, and then you've mellowed out then or like talking you know, about that? Yeah. I never think that, I think, I never thought that it was harsh, harsh. No, cause it's just not, 
sort of who I am, but I, I think I was probably didn't, I, I didn't take my time in choosing words at halftime, you know, as well as I should have, you know, I was still, I was still playing back then. So I, I would jump in, demonstrate, I'm like, no, it's gotta be like this. So I would jump in and just try to do it better. Right. So in, instead of, you know, as you get older coaching, you can't demonstrate, you have to be a better communicator. You have to like be able to choose words and descriptive of technique, descriptive of, you know, you know, I could run fitness and, and, and beat everybody in my first couple of years. Right. You know, so, so I could say, let's get fit. Let's go. Like if yeah. I, let's go, you know? So, so you just, things change in, in, in communication, I think was one of the things that changed for me over time that I hope that I did a better job of with my experiences. I think so many players that become coaches, you know, they know the game from the player side and right. they've had coaches. And so they kind of, they emulate some of the things that they've heard and that sort of thing. But there's one of the reasons we're doing this show is to really get at the root of the rest of coaching, the, you know, knowing people and knowing what motivates them and knowing what our words are doing and how they're affecting people. And I think the book, How to Coach Girls, was so great for me because I can't tell you how many male coaches would... <laughs> get the girl you know get the girls crying within the first three minutes of practice and it's like are you not picking up on this that this is not how they want to be coached yeah, yeah. It, it is really surprising and it's not that it, it's not a matter of just being you know a hard ass for you know lack of a better word it, it's there's other ways to do things and I think as you get become more experienced you learn more about people and you learn more about how to communicate with different types of, of players. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One question I have about this book is uh, the first book before we go on is the idea that we're losing so many kids. It may go into the other book too, but we're losing so many kids in middle school. And it's something that Dr. G and I talk about a lot on our show is that we are the way that that sport is being done and how we're losing these kids. And so I, I'm hoping you could kind of give me your perspective on how do we keep, I mean, just to narrow it down, girls in soccer past, you know, middle school. Yeah, you know, I think that that's a critical age. Middle, middle school kids start having other choices. You know, they get a little bit more freedom from their parents. They're able to hang out, you know, they, they have a voice in their extracurricular activities around that age. And I, I, I just think the most critical influence are, are, are teachers and coaches at, at that age, outside of your parents, you know, and if you can create environments that they look forward to coming to in middle school, well, they're going to keep that, you know, they're going to shut out other distractions and they're, they're going to choose, you know, and if you, you, you make them feel a part of something really important and that they're proud of and that they love to represent and give some sort of like status, whether it's going into high school, you know, sports is such a wonderful thing to, to gain, you know, th th that with. And I think too many times kids start feeling like they're dragging themselves, you know, to, to practice and it's not fun anymore. And then their parents aren't, you know, are gonna give them an opportunity to, to, to play soccer or not play soccer. So just really making them feel proud of, of what they're doing and being a part of this and complimenting their hard work and their success and, you know, giving them that, that positivity to like, this is a really cool thing you can, and, and, and just want them. And so they, you know, intrinsically want to just keep doing it they want to play, they want to do it. So I, I think you have a lot of influence as a coach to make that, to, to create that environment of connectedness and to, to really have them keep wanting to do it. Yeah. Can you think of another way that you developed that? I'll call it like a sense of belonging. How else have you developed that with, you know, some of the younger girls? Yeah. You know, I think a big part of it for girls is, doing other things with the team outside of practicing games. Mm -hmm. So somebody has a Friday night pizza party, the kids love that stuff. And then that becomes what they do for their social life too. They're gonna hang out and, you know, or a pregame pasta party, or, you know, you can teach so many great skills. You know, you can do toys for tots with your team and so many important, you know, community services to make them feel like this is, this is something I want this connection to stay. So certainly being positive and, and, and everything on the, on the field is important. But creating it and having that that group of players show their friendship in other ways and show their you know good intention in other ways, I, I think is really important. 
to keep them together because they want to do that. They want to, every, every, you know, it's like the wisdom of crowds. We all want to be included. We all want to have a connection at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm thinking of, you got me thinking and it's a, it's a, it, a, not, a not a port. Not a, huh? Have you read that book, Wisdom of Crowds? I don't know if I have. I end up, you know, I, I end up, this is so bad, right? Like you're going to expose me now. Like I end up going back and reading more like original research than anything. That's, that's fantastic. You know, so I, I, I go back instead of really like people exciting. talking. Yeah, they talk about the books and I'll be like, wait a minute, I read that article about that book like four years yeah, ago. Yeah, right, you know exactly. You know, and then the book gets popular and I'm like, oh yeah, I nerded out on the article. But <laughs> what it sounds like, right, like social, well, you talked about really academically, social cohesion, right? If when you're forming a team, you do things on the field, but outside the field that are non-task related. We call them social cohesion or social activities. You know, and, and, and you know, sports psychology, that's, that's a kind of fundamental of sports psych. But the sense of belonging too, that if people, young people especially, don't have that sense of belonging and they start gravitating towards gangs or, yep. you know, crowds and, and groups that are doing what they call, right, antisocial behavior, you know, yep. th- then next thing you know, right, that's why we, we want people involved in sport if it's, it's, if it's desirable and positive, but that's not a guarantee, but we don't want people in you know, right, drugs, gangs, violent, you know, deviant, you know, so-called deviant behavior and things that are really going to be bad for your kids and you don't want people doing those things. Right, correct, yeah. exactly. All right, I'm done nerding out, I'm sorry. <laughs> I doubt it. Cohesion is the word I should have used. Thank you, Doctor. That was sorry. good. I'm sure that these very important articles are linked <laughs> below so Thank everyone you. Yes. can nerd out as well. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have the link for the elusive full ride scholarship, <laughs> but tell us why, why should we run out and get it? What, what is, what's in it? What, tell me what I'm going to be reading about. I've already read it, but yeah. You know, I, I think there's a lot of misconceptions on how the recruiting process happens. And if you're, you know, doing a club sport, then you're definitely going to get recruited. I think the stat for division one, division two, division three, NAIA, and JUCO, high school kids, only 7% of high school kids are gonna go in one of those five divisions. One of those five divisions, 7% of kids that are playing high school sport. That's not a high number. And I guarantee you, the majority of parents think it's 93%, right? Yeah. Uh, you're, you're talking about somebody else's kid. My, my kid's gonna get the scholarship, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> so the book wasn't written to be a Debbie Downer. <laughs> It was, and, and, you know, break hope. It was more to guide you to be hopefully in that 7%. Here are some things you should be thinking about, whether it's, you know, the exposure side of things, whether it was how to communicate with coaches, you know, you know, all the different facets of, of, of be, you know, of a prospective student athlete and, and just, you know, sort of an insider's guide and tips. You know, I don't know too much, but since this is the only thing I've done my whole life, I know a little bit about this. Just, you know, it was, it was designed to hopefully give them a, you know, a, a, a better defined map on how to go through this recruiting process. And the, the good thing was, you know, I had a lot of great people collaborating in that book. And, you know, we had, we had not only stories from coaches, you know, division three, people that won national championships, male coaches, female coaches, but we've got male and female athletes to speak to about their process. And I, and I, I find that more than any, anything I put in the book, what, what the players wrote about, how they talked about their experiences, so helpful. So yeah, we just, you know, we just, if that's something people want to do, we hope we can help families, you know, navigate the process. I, I got a great one for you, right? So you're head coach, BC, you've been in the field for 30 years then, and you're seeing now the development of, you know, the elite youth sport athlete. Yeah. What's some of the craziest stuff you've seen from various recruiting clinics and firms and, you know, gurus that are promising, you know, all this stuff to, to, to the teenagers or even middle schoolers nowadays? Like, what's the stuff that you just feel, you're like, wow, I can't believe that that's going on right now. And that's so, you know, wrong and just inaccurate. Yeah, I, I think a lot of recruiting companies actually give the wrong numbers, quite frankly. And, and, and I think, you know, guarantees are, the word guarantee is, is a tough word, you know, and probably shouldn't be used. And I, I think there's too many, you know, websites or companies that say like, if you, we guarantee you to get to one of your top five schools, there's no guarantee, right? No. 
And, you know, just that that's when I think the biggest gimmicks is just using that word guarantee. You know, parents will go to great lengths to, to get their kids recruited. So again, you know, we, we try to defy some of those myths in the book and, you know, and scare people away from, you know, certain things that maybe they just thought that they should do and, and probably shouldn't. I, I will have to put in the show notes. I'll go find it, Meg, that uh, NCA does report, you know, like those percentages every year or so, every you know, five years, they update it, whatever. But it's just, it's such a fraction. And they're just like, you like, you know, be involved in sports, but, you know, don't, don't gamble everything you have on thinking your kid's going to get a scholarship. You got better odds of, you know, your kid's selling insurance or working at a retail store or, you know, you can invest your time and energy in some other things and have a, a balanced, you know, child as well. I, I agree with that. And, and I think, gee, one of the things is the ROI effect comes in, you know, parents mm-hmm. definitely think there's this, you know, return of their, you know, oh, yeah. investment of club sport and all the tournaments we brought them and all the uniforms we bought and all the time and effort, you know, that's yeah. a big part of it, time and effort. And, uh, we, yeah. you know, so of course our kid, the, the light at the end of the tunnel or the, the gold at the end of the rainbow is my child's going to get a scholarship because I'm putting it on, you know, so you got to really, as a parent, take a step back the return of investment is having your kid have an excellent experience on a team. And I don't know, some fun, some fun. Exactly. Yeah. Let's we'll, throw that in there. We'll, 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 we got to do more shows on it too, but that's, it's, yeah. I, and I, I agree. I agree, but I also would heal the other parents. And there's actually research too that shows that parents do have higher expectations. The more that they financially involve themselves, right. The more that they pay for sport. So they, yeah. right. They, they believe that, and, you know, it makes sense, but, in today's age, they, the illusion or the, the attraction of I can buy my way into an athletic scholarship because college is so expensive or I want to try to get the, the leverage into the more elite school that anything we can do on that regard is going to help. And, and it creates various forms of inequality. And, and, and it's also just inaccurate, too, in how elite sports, Division One sports in particular, works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm really, I really don't like how, I'll talk to Charlie's experience, you know, the minute they started high school, all the girls talked about was, you know, who who are you looking at? Where, where are you going? What, what camp are you going to? It became, you know, we talked about how BC was such a, a team and such a, a cohesive environment. Her teams became very competitive with each other yeah. at that point. And it was the only focus. So I'm hoping that that at some point, someone is able to kind of break that circle of recruiting and, and getting them so early. It just, I mean, I can't remember. When I was a freshman in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do or where I wanted to go. You know, I do think one good thing, Meg, is, is the legislation that was put in by the NCA now a year and a half ago, that in Division One, which was the, the division that was really expediating commitments and getting early commits. Now you, you cannot, for the majority of sports, majority of sports, not all, you cannot have any communication via email, phone, text, anything until June 15th prior to their junior year. So that that's was- just the, That's just the athlete, right? That's the athlete. They talk to the coaches and they right. get- It still can go around. But they can't, but they can't talk to the, they used to be able to talk to the coach and, oh, can you have Charlie call me, you know, at eight yeah. o'clock. That can't happen anymore. Oh, so, so nothing can be instigated on, on the prospective student athlete side either. So th- it's zero on both sides until June 15th prior to their junior year. So, so, and that was put into place. And I think that was a good, good legislation to, to slow this down because it was getting out of control. People, you know, and the transfer rates were going up and the social pressure, social pressure was going up because in ninth grade, you go into the tournament because you want to get a letter to go to the ID clinic of the college coach on the sideline, as opposed to winning the game for your team and having fun. Yeah. So that, that legislation, I don't think we've seen the full effect. It'll take some time, but I have certainly seen improvement on the, the psychological like ease of, of the decision on families. And, and certainly, you know, the transfer rates will go down. All right, so before we start wrapping stuff up, I want to give Allison a chance to give a little plug here. We're talking about the amount, the percentage of actual players that are able to go and be on a college team. 
But what about the varsity blues and scandal and how crazy these parents are putting their heads, someone else's head on a on an athlete? And what are you doing with Foley Athletic Advising that's unique in this area so that this kind of stuff doesn't happen? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, for the most part, those are parents, right, promoting their children. If not everything, I think I think it was every every case was a parent. So, you know, so so that's a big separation and and. You know, I think what we're trying to do with Foley Athletic Advising is it, it advise the correct way, you know, and, and show the correct way. And, you know, some, some people do engage with our company as ninth graders, some their junior year. But the good thing is they all have different goals. And one thing is I need to tell them, I don't think from a soccer perspective, that's a realistic goal. That's, you know, your reach goal. And here's why, you know, so it's really kind of helps the family be realistic and, and hopefully do it the right way. So I think that's, you know, what, one of the, one of the, just uh, the years of experience that I have that, that we can kind of help and guide people that way. I think it's important too. It's hard for parents to hear the real story, but the kids and the, and the parents need to hear, you know, reality. Here's, here's what you really should be thinking, or here's what your, your options could be. So I think that's, that's great that you're able to provide that. And the thing is, too, when people come in with this list, I'm like, guess what? There's some great schools out there. The NESCACs are wonderful. They're fantastic. And it, and it might be a soccer level that you can impact, too. So, you know, so, so giving them, you know, we just don't say no. We, we get to know them. And we through all these questions, sort of like the soccer audience that we initially ask prospective student athletes, you know, about what they want their college experience to look like. And so we then can develop school other other schools that they're not thinking about that we think are, are are better matches for them and redirect them there so they thought like you know saying no to you me saying i don't think unc is the right fit and then you know showing them other schools that they weren't considering at all that are great schools that's fantastic all right well we're at the point in the show when we ask you to dish we want to find out we try and get everyone to share with us either a good or bad coach story that uh, is a little, you know, has a lesson in there, something that either happened to you or, a, you know, a teammate or just a really good coach story. Yeah, I don't know if it's a, a good story. I, I just remember, you know, we talk a lot about communication, you know, and, and, and just how you find things out. I, I remember in the olden days in national camp, and this still happens sometimes when college coaches travel they'll put the travel list on the locker the back of a lot you know in the locker room and so then like that practice before you know the bus you know the flight uh, your flight everyone's kind of tiptoeing in to see if their names on that you know that list or not and you know i found uh, there were a lot of summers i found out i was cut from the national team by a list in the dormitory right <laughs> or yeah not seeing my name on the uh, on the list in the dormitory so i i just think that that is such a heavy like if I could ask coaches to just communicate bad news better, yeah, in, in, you know, as, as, as easy as that might sound, I, I, I think everyone's going to deliver the good news verbally, but people, coaches deliver bad news. That, that's when people need your support the most. You know, I, you know, so we used to, I did it before, by the way, I've done this before, and, but over time, if somebody wasn't going to travel, I had that conversation with them individually usually in the office or on, on the phone. And I, yeah, so, you know, I've, 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 I've had it done to me both ways and I've done it both ways. And I just think, you know, a good lesson is, you know, ver, you know, individual, you know, individually deliver your bad news. <laughs> so it sounds like the equivalent today's age of like cutting, you, know, you don't make this, you find out by tweet, you know, yeah, like, right. <laughs> don't, don't text me up with me. Yeah. <laughs> That warrants You're, a phone call. In 140, <laughs> at Allison Vully, you have not made the team. Sorry, you know. Period. <laughs> hashtag, <laughs> hashtag, hashtag try again. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is terrible. Like next year. Yeah. Yeah. That is the perfect lead in to my inspirational quote of oh the show. Here we go. Are you guys ready? Ready. Only dead fish go with the flow. <laughs> Here we go. Stay alive and active. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I think I finally made Dr. G speechless. Stumped. I, 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 I think you just gonna compile all of these and we're gonna put you in a skit with like other 
like real people and athletes and you're going to show up and they're all just going to look and go. <laughs> this is, this is literally becoming my favorite part of the show. <laughs> Watch out. He can psychoanalyze you. Oh yeah. Whatever. Oh, <laughs> I tried. I tried. There was nothing there. Oh, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Allison, for, for coming on the show. We appreciate your time. And, and I know everyone is going to really appreciate watching and listening to this, getting lots of great information. So thank you. Thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit the follow button because there's more sport knowledge on the way. If you're interested in more information or want to engage in further conversation about these and other issues in sport, visit our website at spknmedia.com. To stay updated on all things SPKN, follow us on social media at spknmedia or email us at team at spknmedia.com and we'll be happy to welcome you to the SPKN community.